0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Thursday, March the 21st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We thought we might take a break from the utter madness of Brexit for a while and turn our attention to the rational calm waters of US politics. I'm joined on the line by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, and we're going to have a chat, Suzanne, about the Democratic presidential primaries. Before we get into the individuals involved, and God knows there are plenty of them right now, um, how long is this contest going to go on? And and, and actually, perhaps uh, most, most importantly, when does it actually really begin?
1: Yeah, uh, Hugh, we're still a long way away from the the first date in this Democratic primary calendar. So next January, uh, Iowa will become the first state to essentially uh, choose its Democratic uh, candidate for president. Then New Hampshire will follow, and then a string of states around Super Tuesday. And what we'll see around that time is that a a possible candidate will then emerge at that point. So we're many, many months away here. Uh, And then when that primary process starts next spring, well then, of course, it's not until next November that the actual election proper happens. So we're very far out of this point.
0: We're familiar with that chronology of starting off in Iowa and and New Hampshire. And so I was listening to a podcast last week on this subject. You know, these things seem to be set in stone or or mostly set in stone, although I think there's going to be some changes next year. Some
1: changes this year, yeah. And that is significant. So some bigger states like California, Texas, they're moving their primaries earlier in the calendar. Now, they're still not as early as Iowa and New Hampshire, but that's significant because A, they're very big states, and B, they're much more um, reflective of the demographic makeup of of America. So they've got huge, maybe Hispanic populations, um, maybe um, more African-American voters in some cases, because this is one of the problems with the system. Iowa and New Hampshire are the first to vote in the Democratic primary, but they're, they're predominantly white. They're predominantly rural. They do not reflect uh, real America. So the fact that these other states are going to have more uh, more authority, if you like, in the early stages could change things because if a candidate came out quite successfully in those uh, primaries, that could uh, dictate how well they uh, they continue into next year.
0: And, and and that can have a huge effect on on the different candidates. And just to, to start looking at those candidates we're not going to go through them all because i said there's an awful lot of them and i don't think um you can quote this back to me when i turn out to have been entirely wrong in 13 months time but i don't think we'll be discussing andrew andrew yang or wayne Messum as the as the democratic candidate in, in in the middle of next year but there are obviously some big significant figures chief amongst them um Bernie Sanders, who was the, um, I suppose, the person who came second last time out against Hillary Clinton. There's Kamala Harris. Um, there's Elizabeth Warren. Um, there's and, and then there's, there, of course, there's a there's a big person waiting in the wings, um, which is Joe Biden. So I'm, I'm not sure how we should group these. You know, they, I've, I noticed an interesting piece in The Washington Post um, uh, this week, which suggested that what was described as the three B-boys, which is Biden, who hasn't yet declared, but is anticipated to, Beto O'Rourke and Bernie Sanders, were getting a disproportionate amount of coverage. What they have in common, of course, is that they're all male and white.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Look, the first thing to say is this is why it's so interesting. Last time around, as we all know, there was essentially an anointed candidate, Hillary Clinton. She was the candidate. uh, Bernie Sanders put up a very good fight, uh, came a close second. And that essentially... Split the Democratic Party. You'll remember there's lots of controversy about how uh, they had prioritised Clinton over Sanders, and and that really damaged the Democratic Party. And some people would say actually helped elect Donald Trump because so many disgruntled Bernie Sanders supporters were annoyed at how they had been treated in the primary process. Fast forward two years later, now we have got a whole uh, different situation here, and that is this massive uh, list of people, more than a dozen people, as you mentioned who are in the in the, in the the starting um, line. Now, as you say, some of these are going to fall by the wayside, and we still are in very early days, but there are some significant figures, as you've just pointed out there. Uh, the three Bs are being called now, Beto, that's Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Um, these are the ones to watch. Polls so far have said that Joe Biden, although he has not declared he's going to run yet, he is leading... Practically all polls among democratic voters, Bernie Sanders is number two, and then people like Kamala Harris, who's, who's a strong candidate, and Beto O'Rourke is up there around number four. But you're right in that there's been a lot of discussion here about, um, the, you know, white male privilege essentially. Uh, number one, that a lot of these these male candidates um, are given all this media publicity, whereas female candidates that are a lot more experienced in some cases, like Elizabeth Warren, like Kamala Harris like uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, um, have got minimum media coverage. So that's that's a whole issue uh, here at the moment. Secondly, uh, there's also the obvious point that do we need a, does the Democratic Party, does the country need another white man uh, as a candidate, particularly when we've just come out of mid uh, midterm election cycle, which uh, returned a record number of women to Congress. Uh, so that is an issue that's going to, you know, follow these three male candidates around on the campaign trail. Um, so one possibility that I think is a very, a very distinct possibility is that um, these, particularly Joe Biden, if he declares and we expect he will declare in April, that they perhaps uh, name a running mate at an early stage and a female running mate. So, for example, there's a lot of speculation, or I've I, I've kind of heard that perhaps one combination for Joe Biden would that he would run, say he's only staying for one term, and bring Kamala Harris uh, as his running mate at an early stage, and that would kind of um, assuage concerns about that issue on gender balance. Uh, so what's also happening, though, is, is that this is really a fight for the heart of the Democratic Party. Really, it's, it's the same issue that was there two years ago. How progressive should the Democratic Party be? Do you need to be a more moderate cl- uh, candidate, like a Bill Clinton-style, Tony Blair, third-way candidate, to win the national vote? Or do you need to move further to, to the left, people like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren? Uh, and that played out in the midterms where where newly elected members of Congress like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, is on the left, has really, has really been on the ascendant here in Washington. So I think the Democratic Party still has not worked out what their economic message and what their political message is and what is the best one to beat Donald Trump.
0: Isn't it true, though, that in the midterms, there's a lot of focus on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, you know, for for obvious reasons, I think, but also that many of the gains the Democrats made were in middle class suburban districts which swung from Republican to Democrat, uh, at least partly because of votes from centrist, well-educated women who were just repelled by Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right there. And for every... Some strategists in the Democratic Party have warned uh, against drawing too much from the success of, of people like Ocasio-Cortez. She's representing a very specific area of New York. Um, but you're right, there are other candidates who who won because they claimed that centrist vote. I'm thinking, for example, of Conor Lamb. He's another Irish-American new member of Congress. Now, he won actually a, a by-election last year, um, but he campaigned as a Democrat. Um, but he won a seat that went heavily for Trump in 2016. But he won that seat by by presenting a very kind of moderate Democratic uh, policy line. For example, I believe he's, you know, he's pro-gun rights, for example. So, you know, one model does not fit all. You're absolutely right. And then the bigger problem is, uh, it's a simple problem, but it's at the core of this presidential campaign. There are two races going on. There's the first race, which is to win the Democratic nomination. And then there's a whole other races. Who is the best Democrat to win the country? So at the moment, the win seems to be with the more progressive wings, the Bernie Sanders, et cetera. But of course, the, 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 you know, the big question is, would a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who may get the win the Democratic Party party primaries and may have the support with, with among Democrats, would he be the person that would attract, as you say, those middle ground voters? Mm-hmm. And and in that poll I mentioned, I mean, there's so many polls, but that's the latest one that was just out yesterday. What's so interesting about that is that most Democratic voters actually say, even though Sanders polls quite well, That they believe that their party's chances nationally are better without Sanders, and that they believe they have a better shot with Joe Biden. And you see, this is Joe Biden's big calling card that he may be the person who can communicate, who can engage with the the white working class male voters that switch from Democrat to Republican uh, during um, the 2016 election. So that's why I think a lot of people are prepared to, to give him a chance despite concerns about his, his age. And basically. I think it's
0: right to say that that polls of Democrats over the last couple of months have shown that electability in the general election is more important than ideological conformity with whatever, whatever those, those voters might fear. And also, theres I mean, there are so many complex factors within this. It is very difficult to boil it down, isn't it? And when you look at Hillary Clinton's failure, yes, part of it was a failure to connect with the, these famed blue-collar white working-class voters in, in Rust Belt states, but it was also a failure to enthuse um, black... Um, uh, um, black voters in America's cities who came out to vote for Barack Obama but didn't come out in sufficient numbers to get Hillary Clinton over the lines. So it's the whole question of party enthusiasm with key bases. Um, so... We have these, what you might call these um, cultural divisions between the candidates as embodied in their personalities, they're white or they're black, they're, they're, they're male or they're female. There are ideological differences and we might come back to those in a moment. There's one thing that really strikes me though, looking at it from outside, it's very unusual in a, in a major democracy to have so many of the contenders be quite as old. Some of these are because yeah. Donald Trump himself is heading for his mid seventies. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren would all be uh, going into the presidency well into their seventies, yeah, yeah. Um, which is Who, remarkable we, and surely has to play into the the race and perhaps to the advantage of a of a better O'Rourke, for example.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Joe Biden is, is 76. Bernie Sanders is 77. Elizabeth Warren is 69. So that is an issue. And you know, as I mentioned there with Joe Biden in particular, that is the, 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 main, the main issue for him. So there's now talk that he might say, he might, as I say, take an early running mate, or, you know, he may actually say, I'm going to be a one term candidate. But then there's the argument if he starts saying that, that that draws attention to his age. So, you know, and there's a sense here in the country, again, you're absolutely right, it's very hard to generalise on this, but, you know, that, that maybe if, if if there was any time, this is the time where America wants the kind of the grandfather figure. as Someone put it to me here. Somebody knows where the light switches are in the White House. <laughs> someone who can steady the ship. And people may be at this point ready to kind of look past the and that we need someone. He's, he's almost an anti-Trump, Joe Biden. You know, another old white guy in the 70s, but who actually has a lot of experience. Um, so so I think because of the moment we are in in America, that's my feeling, but there may be more tolerance for this. Nancy Pelosi has done a lot for the uh, for the older politician here. She is 78, back in uh, for her second round as Speaker of the House. There was a lot of dissent, a lot of questions about her ability, essentially, to do that role before the, the midterms in November. She has uh, arrived back um, as House Speaker and has basically knocked everyone else out of the park. She is... You know, she has proven the, the value of experience uh, and judgment. So I think that's been good for a lot of these older candidates. But you're right, that is going to be an issue weighing on them. It's going to be an advantage for someone like Beto O'Rourke. Uh, he's in his mid-40s uh, and he's also the more of that centrist candidate who maybe will be able to appeal to. He'll definitely be able to appeal to the Hispanic voters uh, from tech. You know, he's, he's from El Paso in Texas. Uh, he's also, you know, white male. Um, he's also maybe more to the centre than people realise. For example, I think I'd I stand to be correct on this, but on gun, gun rights as well, he's more to, to the centre than you might think. Of course, this reflects his background as a Texan politician. Um, but ultimately, I think he might be the person that has um, that is able to take on these other male candidates, if you like, in the field because, because of the younger age.
0: There was a lot of talk... Um earlier before this beauty contest proper started as was at the start of January about how the the field should be open for you know a midwestern governor with from a centrist background who you know it had has some, some success in a, in a, in a purple state or or even a a red state uh, there was some talk of the Ohio senator Sherrod Brown who then ruled himself out but Amy Klobuchar um, yeah. is, is is sort of represents th- that perspective. If if Democrats were to think that's the kind of person who's going to win, Amy Klobuchar represents that. That
1: yeah, she is um, a senator from Minnesota, and she's very well known for a kind of pragmatic bipartisan approach uh, to legislating. Uh, and there have been reports that she is actually a candidate that Donald Trump fears uh, because there's a sense that she could uh, she really could connect. With that more rural conservative, you know centrist voter in America who is who is Republican by instinct, but, but does not like uh, Donald Trump, in saying that uh, she has she has come up for a lot of criticism. Uh, basically, there's been a lot of reporting about her treatment of staff, um, and that has really damaged her. I think the um, New York Times did a, a very a kind of explosive piece uh, based on uh, quotes with uh, former. Employees, in which she's uh, described uh, in in very stark terms uh, by former employees as basically being a bully. Um, And she has had to come out on that uh, and has said, you know, she's a tough boss and she doesn't make any excuses for that. But again, that opens up the debate, you know, are different standards held for for women? You know, a a man who treats staff like that might be more kind of, it's more expected where as a woman, you you know, you're you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. So she's kind of fallen back a bit. But again, that's where the Joe Biden character would, would could probably play well. He uh, he was a senator from Delaware, but he was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, right in the heartland of of some of those Rust Belt states to vote for Trump. So, you know, if he was to declare the suggestion that he would go back to that home state and make this, um, make this pitch to that ordinary American working vote. But there is a sense, and I think that is very true, that you know the Democrats can ignore the 2016 election at their peril, and and there's a temptation here that people are just on the Democrat. Things are so polarized that you know they want anybody just to take on Trump, Um, and you know there's a sense among the Democrats, you know, the tougher they go against Trump, that that goes down very well with Democratic voters. But of course, as I mentioned, there, that's not necessarily going to work well. At the for the wider vote, and this is where Beto work has been very clever. I I saw him at an event in Texas just before the midterms, and his message is one of unity. He he doesn't really criticise Donald Trump. He, in a kind of Bobby Kennedy way, talks about unifying the country. There's more that connects us than separates us. He's there for all Americans. All very
0: Obama-esque. All of that, isn't it? Very,
1: very. And at a time when this country is so divided, I think that could work. I think that's very, very clever. He's almost riding above you know, the cut and thrust of politics. Now, he's been criticised for that, you know, for this accusations of this kind of white male privilege. You know, he, he obviously, he, he lost the Senate election against um, Ted Cruz in Texas. And, you know, there's been a lot of kind of feminist commentary saying, oh, you know what I'll do next? I'll just run for president, even though I lost an election. You know, that, that kind of sense of entitlement. Um, but at the same time, I, I I personally think I've seen some of the candidates. I mean, to me, he is by far the most charismatic and the most engaging. And and I think he's more experienced than people give him credit for. He was a congressman uh, representing Texas in Washington uh, for some years. Uh, so, you know, on a personal level, I think he's the one to watch.
0: And what do you um, make of the chances of Kamala Harris? Because in some ways, that kind of analysis we're talking about here militates against her. She's a, she's a woman of colour from a coastal state. Um, but on the other hand, she's had a very impressive rollout and she's an impressive character.
1: Yeah, so she actually, it's, it's interesting, she's the other candidate I've seen quite recently. i travelled to South Carolina to, um, to attend one of her rallies in, in the early days of her campaign. This is quite interesting. Again, she's a very impressive character, senator from California, a very strong legal background as attorney general uh, in California. Now, her legal record has come under scrutiny uh, that she perhaps wasn't as less clingy as she is uh, making out. Uh, she did a lot on, on criminal justice reform and that's one of her signature policies. Um Interestingly, in in terms of the gender dynamics of this, unlike uh, Kirsten Gillibrand from York, uh, who is who has stressed a lot her role as a mother. You know, I'm a mother of I can't remember how many children, but she and she's done a lot on the Me Too movement. Uh, She she really has done a lot and she is pushing that a lot. Uh, Kamala Harris isn't. Uh, She doesn't really talk about her gender and her role as a woman as such. And again, returning to, to this theme on how do you take on Trump? Do you go tough or do you take a Michelle Obama line? If they go low, we go high. She's taking a tougher line on Trump, saying she's, you know, she's going to take him on. She, she's the person who can take him on, which, again, and the gender dynamics is appealing to some people because they feel that she is the guy, kind of the tough guy, uh, commander in chief credentials needed to take on Donald Trump. Now, in saying that, I was, again, on a personal level, Slightly disappointed at her rally. Um, I felt she, her connect, I mean, she was nowhere near as charismatic as Better or Work. And I felt there was a, a certain um, detachment and I'd probably say arrogance in her approach to the crowd. And, you know, she was quite weak in a lot of policy details, for example, healthcare. That's be- going to become again a huge. A huge theme in this presidential election, and she kind of moved the debate the debate further to the left by saying she kind of supports Medicare for all, which is, is seen as a quite a quite a radical position. And then when she was questioned about that by members of the audience, she, she really didn't have much to say. So I wonder will she keep you know keep up her standing under the scrutiny. As I say, she's doing very well in the polls. There is no doubt about that, and the public like her. Also, mentioning South Carolina, that's one of the early voting states, and that has a significant African-American population. So I think that 60% of those who, the Democratic electorate, if you like, who will be choosing the the primary candidate next year are African-American. So this is where Kamala Harris will do well. Someone like Bernie Sanders, he was there last week. He got very few African-Americans to his event. So that's going to be a problem for a candidate like him.
0: Um, it, it 's not something I think those of us who live outside America understand very well but the whole issue of Medicare and health care and the costs of health care is, is a is a huge political issue in the United states it 's a swing vote issue in elections it 's a massive issue for the Democrats they think an issue that will work to their advantage although it 's been against them in the past when Obamacare was being introduced they've they 've suffered as a result and perhaps have they has Kamala Harris learned a lesson in that response that, that, that you described there that don 't be over specific about what you're going to promise because you're going to get yourself into trouble that way.
1: Exactly. There's a couple of things to say on that. Uh, number one, in the era of Trump, we are into the era of magical thinking politics. You know, we now have a person in the White House who promised so much that was basically fabricated uh, and he still got there and his supporters seem to be still with him. So are we seeing, there is a question here, are we seeing these kind of promises, uh, you know, at the early stage. We saw Elizabeth Warren this week said, oh, I think we should abandon the Electoral College system. Now, that's a, it's a pretty good point, but it's not going to happen. And that will not happen if she becomes President of the United States. So, so that's one issue. But the second issue on Medicare, you're absolutely right. What was very interesting in the midterms is that Nancy Pelosi, the, the, the head Democrat, if you like, um, instructed her caucus not to go out fighting Donald Trump, instead to focus on bread and butter economic issues like health care. And they did, and it worked. And in the midterm elections, we saw some Republicans who were under pressure uh, in certain seats kind of have to compete on healthcare issues with Democrats. You know, the Democrats brought them to the left on this issue. So that did kind of work for them in the midterms. But now we have a split within the Democratic Party. And as this uh, process intensifies, I think we're going to be getting more more pointed questions on this. You know, where exactly do you stand on Medicare? Basically, you know, most Americans, ironically, and and uh, it, the fact is that, yes, people ideologically, Democrats, you know, such the champagne socialist type of a democratic voter wants free medical care in America. But very few of them want to give up their own health care because they've actually got very health, good health care. The irony here in America that if you can pay for it, if you've got a health care plan, health care is excellent in this country. So what they're running against is the real politic that, yes, why people in theory may support the idea. In reality, they don't want to be told that they will have to give, surrender their own health insurance. So that's going to be a tricky uh, political debate running through the Democratic primaries in the next few months. And I think that's one thing we will see the Republicans hammering the Democrats on as this competition um, intensifies.
0: But the magical thinking thing is interesting, and the influence, the experience of watching Trump's triumph is interesting as well, isn't it? Because in a way, there is a similarity here. You had a huge field in the Republican contest for, the, for you, the, the 2016 presidency, and now, for the first time in a very long time, you have a huge field, a huge Democratic field. And the question, just the basic strategic question, is going to be, how do you make your candidates stand out above all these other ones?
1: Absolutely. You've you've hit on a key point there, which is the lesson of the Trump uh, campaign was that he he who shouts loudest, you know, wins. And and because there's a question here for the media, the more outrageous his claims and the more media coverage he got, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And we all know where that ended up. So, you know, is something similar going to play out in the Democratic side? As you say, they're all going to be scrambling to be heard above the phrase. So they will be incentivized to say something more and more radical in order to get heard. And this brings in the other question, which is fundraising. That is not to be underestimated in this country, obviously. Um, but, you know, the issue on fundraising has changed slightly. A, the power of big donors and super PACs, etc., is declining. It's still important, but it's declining. And the power of small online do- donors, which we first saw uh, under Obama, is is really exploding. Uh, Beto O'Rourke raised £6.1 million in his first day, from small donors, Bernie Sanders was was just behind that. Um, but you know, I, I, as you're suggesting, there actually, you know, how far can can fundraising bring you? It will be important when you get into those bigger states like California, Texas, where there's very sophisticated media markets, and you need to be putting out ads, etc. You need, a, you know, a deep deep pockets at that point. But with social media now, maybe he who speaks loudest will get the most uh, publicity. So I think that's a really interesting thing to watch. Uh, over the next few months. And and again, getting back to what we opened with, you know, someone like Elizabeth Warren, Harvard professor, excellent on policy, very sophisticated uh, thinking. Uh, She's a left-wing thinker, but she has got very thought-through ideas about bankers' pay, socialism, essentially. And yet even she you know, has been forced away from that. There's not much interest in hearing her policy. Of course, echoes of Hillary Clinton here, again, it's a gender thing. You know, people don't want to hear a woman with, with that kind of level of policy detail, perhaps. But she is now facing the reality that there is not that much interest. Her Her, her candidacy hasn't really taken off here yet. Um, and as I say, just mentioning that suggestion by hers about the Electoral College, that got more publicity than any of her policies on bankers pay etc well then the le- so, the lesson
0: there is to make big promises even if you know mm. there's absolutely no uh, no positive, to to find whatever your yeah. your wall is i suppose
1: Mm-mm. and someone like Beto orourke he's been criticized uh, rightly so that for a kind of um a vagueness you know he he hasn't he he hasn't got a very sophisticated set of policies and he he tries to say that's a strength so Famously, a few months ago, I think it was a Washington Post journalist when everyone was kind of trying to find him after he lost the election in November, and he went on a road trip through America on his own. But there was a, there was a very a negative piece, I suppose, in the Washington Post where someone asked, him, "Well, what do you think of, of of the wall and immigration?" And he lives in El Paso, Texas, at the at the Mexican border, and he kind of said, "Well, I don't really know. I'm I'm still kind of working through that." So he is this kind of luxury of not having a policy on and something, and, and this would be true of of Democrats. Across the board, it's something like immigration and the wall. Yes, they're very against Donald Trump's wall, the separation of children and parents. But what do they have in its place? Because the reality is that a lot of center ground voters here in America, although they abhor Donald Trump's immigration policy, they they do want some boundaries on immigration. Mm. They do want some sensible report. So if the the Democrats need to have an answer to that, and people like Beto O'Rourke at this point don't, so it'll be interesting to see if that if they're forced to clarify this as the months uh, go on.
0: I do wonder, I mean we've named most of the people who are regarded as being front runners for the contest at the moment, but there are many more there's whatever there is, 13 or 14 of them in the race at the moment. There may well be more to come. There was all kinds of talk of celebrity candidates previously, everybody from, you know, Oprah to The Rock as far as I can uh, as yeah. far as I can re- re- recall. But um If we kind of mirror this against what was happening in the run-up to 2016 presidential election, at this stage, I don't think... It was still months before Donald Trump came down his golden escalator and started mouthing off about Mexicans. So it's not beyond the bounds of possibility either that somebody entirely unexpected could spring into the race or that one of these less well-known candidates, I think, for example, of Pete uh, Buttigieg, and I've actually learned how to pronounce his name, which is a sign that he's having hes, he's having some form <laughs> of success, I suppose. You know, somebody yeah. like that um, who's utterly unheard of can yeah. jump from nowhere and become the, the Jimmy Carter of this prime.
1: It's possible. I mean, we've already had kind of more independent candidates like Howard Schultz, CEO of Starbucks, um, Mayor Michael Bloomberg. And and again, these these kind of figures, again, if we're talking about appealing to center ground Republicans, they might work. Then you figure, I think, like John Kerry, somebody like him, you know, possible he could come into the race. Um, Stacey Abrams, the African-American candidate in the Georgia uh, race who who narrowly lost in November, she hasn't ruled out a run. so there are you're absolutely right. there are other figures who could who could spring up uh, in the next few months uh, and and of course, it's only i mean we are now speaking at a time where there's a you know a flurry of activity around these candidates, a mm-hmm. lot of coverage by people like Beto O'Rourke, when Joe Biden declares if he does. Then he will get a lot of, uh, you know, that's the way it works. He will get a lot of media activity. So you know, it remains to be seen when everyone is declared. If you like, things settle down, um, then how things pan out, uh, because it, it is so early to make any kind of a, of a of a of a, of a, of a prediction. Also to watch our endorsements. Um, that's very important here. Barack Obama. I mean, famously during the Clinton, uh, the Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama. Democratic uh, competition, and there was a lot of background um, maneuvering about who was going to support uh, which candidate. I, I think I, I think I'm right on this that Ted Kennedy, you know, the Clintons were sure that he was in the bag for Hillary Clinton, and then he now no, he who's going to back Barack Obama. Yeah, that and was a huge thing. Felt, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, they felt yeah. they, you know, they were losing a lot of these people that they thought. So you know, you never know what's around the corner. You could see the wind moving. Um, towards one of or other of these candidates, everybody is going to look at what Barack Obama is going to say. He's unlikely to to get involved. This, this you know, the level of his involvement may um, focus on issues of gerrymandering and voters' rights and that kind of thing. He's indicated he might be interested in that, but um, you know that will be interesting to see who the big figures in the Democratic Party, people like Pelosi, essentially, uh, back. Uh, But, you know, the Joe Biden, if he announces he's by far ahead of the poll, I think that how everyone responds to him uh, will maybe dictate the shape of of the race.
0: The other element I do wonder about, because the other way in which American politics has changed is that there is this factor, which is the factor of the President of the United States himself, who is a publicity junkie, who is determined to suck up all the oxygen in the room, to dominate the media cycle every day, uh, every hour and and every week. And what impact that has on this, what's going to be a very long, drawn-out race with a whole bunch of people who most uh, American voters will have difficulty distinguishing one from the other.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's very interesting because you're, you're absolutely right that Donald, what John, Donald Trump says will matter. And again, there are lessons here from 2016. Hillary Clinton became a hate figure on the right, on Fox News. Um, And Nancy Pelosi, to an extent, has replaced that. And um, so Donald Trump, you know, the more left wing the candidate, and probably the more female, being quite honest, is good for Donald Trump. Um, Because if there's a left wing candidate, someone to the left, well, then we will see um, networks like Fox News and we will see Donald Trump but we've already heard him ta- heard him talk about socialism, the dangers of socialism, in the last few months. You know, the reason he is doing that is to try and paint the Democrats as socialists and warn the country about the impending arrival of socialism. I mean, there's even suspicions here. The reason he seems so interested in getting involved in Venezuela, um, you know, is is to say that he's helping dislodge uh, a socialist leader. So that narrative has really picked up uh, speed here. You know, the de- Democrats equal socialism. So I think Donald Trump will be hoping for um, someone further on the left. Now, you know, talking about gender again, Nancy Pelosi, of course, is someone who is the person who has most successfully taken on Donald Trump. She knew how to handle him. She completely won the battle over the shutdown. Um, there was a famous live televised conversation between her, Chuck Schumer, and Donald Trump where she came out on the ascendant. And uh, Chuck Schumer, who's respected the Senate minority leader, you know, ended up in kind of a, a petty... Verbal altercation with Donald Trump, where again Nancy Pelosi kind of rode above it. So if that's the model to take, well then yeah, maybe a, maybe a female experienced candidate would be better to to take on uh, Donald Trump. Already Joe Biden has talked, I think last year, about taking something like taking on Donald Trump in the schoolyard. So you know the, the optics of that aren't great. You know is that what the Democrats need? Somebody's really going to so that whole debate is going to be interesting. But you're absolutely right. Donald Trump is watching who's going to be taking him on. Um, and as I said. Um, you know, I'd say Joe Biden, he would be uncomfortable with because it, it's the most like Trump. He's just, you know, as I say, the anti-Trump and will be able to connect to those working class white voters that went to, to the Republicans and such droves in the Trump.
0: Suzanne, thanks very much indeed for joining us. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening.